0: Spirit 88.9 FM, we are Catholic Radio for the Christian Community. Spirit Mornings with Bruce McGregor and... Chris McGregor. And today we are joined by Sister Renee Mercus. She is a member of the Franciscan Sisters of Christian Charity in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. Uh, currently, she serves as director at the Center for Napro Ethics... Uh, That's uh, the Ethics Division of the Pope Paul VI Institute right here in Omaha. Together with two undergraduate degrees and a master's degree in music, Sister Renee received her master's degree in moral theology from the University of St. Thomas, Houston, Texas, and her doctorate in in theological ethics, that is, from Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, To her current position in which she deals with natural procreative ethics, she brings experience in clinical ethics, as well as broad experience in bioethics as a research fellow with the Pope John Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Sister, good morning. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much. We are
0: delighted to have you with us.
1: I couldn't think of a better person to be with us on this feast day of uh, Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, also known as Edith Stein. To understand Edith Stein's sister, we really need to put her in a context of uh, where she was born, the time that she lived, and the events that propelled her ultimately to her martyrdom. What do we know about Edith Stein as far as uh, where she was born and her family?
2: Well, basic facts. Um, she was born on October 12, 1891, in a place called Breslau, Germany. Interestingly, after the Second World War, the borders of those uh, countries, Poland, Germany, uh, Austria, were all redefined. So now Breslau, Germany, is in Poland, and it's called Ruklau.
1: Interesting.
2: Yeah. And, uh, you know, 1891, um, by the time she, she was an adult, we're talking 1920s, 1930s, we all know what that was like, the rise of anti-Semitism, Nazism, and, and Hitler in Germany. So it, it, it was an explosive time politically, uh, especially if you were a Jew, and of course she was born of Jewish parents. And uh, especially if you have a mind like that of Edith Stein, a brilliant, brilliant woman. In fact, I always say, of all the the literature that I have studied, and the formal, uh, deep writings of, of of all the women I've ever studied, Edith Stein impresses me as one of the most brilliant minds. You just feel you've encountered a great person, not only intellectually astute, but... Morally and spiritually, in every other way, a, a real giant. A her, real giant. Her field was philosophy. Was it? Oh, not? yeah. This is. You know, and I tried to. I tried to think the other day. Uh, her um, mother, after her father died, I think it was kind of custom in those days that the that the mother would then go off to the uncles, and since the dad was dead, and say, Well, now what are we going to do with Edith? was very bright. All the Stein children were bright, but Edith just seemed to be, you know, the brightest of the bright. And her older sister Erna. And so she went off to the uncles and they talked about it. And they were all professionals. And they said, Well, I think they both should go into medicine. Well, Erna did. They both entered University of Breslau, which would be in their hometown, and I think that's where it was just a two year university at the time, so eventually they would be transferring for uh, higher academic degrees, but they started there in the University of Breslau. Well, Erna actually completed the the training as an obstetrician and gynecologist and actually took up a very successful gynecological practice. But Edith deviated from that direction of her elders and went into philosophy, a doctor of philosophy, not a doctor of medicine. Now, you need know, to say to yourself, well, I wonder why she didn't think of medicine, you know, because she would have worked well, and she, in her writings, often talks about how great it would be for women to be involved in the medical healing arts because that would follow exactly and precisely from the character and nature of woman, you know, to Mm -hmm. heal, to give life, therapy and all that sort of thing. And I thought, you know, I think it's because from childhood forward, If we could ever point to a little natural homegrown philosopher, it would be Edith. I mean, she was just that way. She thought deeply about things when she was just a little kid. And she'd say the most, you know, sublime things. And everybody would look at her and go, "My, where did that come from, you know? And she was also precocious. And she was, you know, typically a, a kid that, you know, thought probably... She was seven going on 37 type of syndrome that a lot of our kids have, you know. Um, So very precocious. But it's that idea that I think she felt that what was natural to her, which is thinking about the word philosophy, pursuit and love of wisdom, Mm -hmm. she just wanted to do everything to encourage that, to deepen that. And I think she thought professional studies in that area would be the way to go and it's, it's that old line from Fides et Ratio where the Pope says, as human beings, we are persons who seek the truth. And I think that sums up Edith's odyssey um, and where she ended up in the end, uh, you know, the vocation that she embraced, the call that God gave her and the vocation that she embraced. Well, as you
1: said, she, her family was Jewish. Mm-hmm. Were they devout? Jews, or was
2: Edith someone well, who was known for I a, a read, strict religious background? Yeah, that's that's interesting question. I read some conflicting things about that. Um, I think what probably is closer to the truth than Annie is that her mother was a very devout, what we'd probably call a devout practicing Jew, and I'm not so sure that you know, they probably did do their... Uh, sabote prayers, you know, wow. uh, at home and everything on Friday evenings. Um, but not, I don't think all of that consistently, and I don't know if all of the children ended up following the mother in that sort of uh, religiosity. Um, and some people dis- describe Edith as an atheist when she was an adolescent and a uh, young adult, and yet I don't think that fits uh, the situation or the way she was toward vis-a-vis God. Mm-hmm. I think Edith just, it's not that she rejected God or thought that there wasn't such a thing as a being called God and that he was indeed higher and bigger and greater than any creature, but that she didn't have a personal relationship. That's why I think when in her postdoctoral days that that marvelous incident where she's with her friends, Hedwig Martius and her husband, and they have a summer home, and they have a library in the summer home. And she walks in, and the the two friends say, Edith, would you like to go out? We're going to go out for dinner tonight. No, I'd rather stay home. I'd rather, if you don't mind, I'd like to just peruse your library. And she does, you know. And then of all books, and these these, these people were Christians, but I don't know if Methodists or what, but they certainly weren't Roman Catholic— And of all books, to find on a shelf of someone that wasn't a Catholic, and then to take from the shelf by someone who is a Jew, the autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. Mm -hmm. You have to describe this as a God incidence. Mm -hmm. Not a coincidence, a God incidence. And I think this was all part, what she read in that autobiography was someone who did have this, who was captured by Christ captivated, as Paul liked to say. I, you know, I'm now a slave, really. Of the, I Not not in the sense of in chains, but mm-hmm. but just totally in love with God, the way people are when they first meet each other and experience romantic love. Everything in the world looks different. Your world is turned upside down. Nothing will ever be the same, and you think, how could I have missed all of this before? Well, that's how Edith saw, I think, um, Teresa of Avila and eventually what she experienced herself, or perhaps was even experiencing in an inchoate manner when she was still a Jew, not practicing Judaism, and kind of just in no man's land as far as praying, let's say, having this relationship where you would go to God. And and as Aristotle said, oh, is it possible to be friends with God? She, she just didn't know if this was true. But I think reading that book, this was God's way of putting her in contact with another very, very intelligent woman, strong leader, uh, fearless, fearless in following convictions, uh, her intellectual convictions, and showed Edith what God does do with human beings, that he longs to love us, and he longs to have us respond it's that whole nuptial relationship that John Paul talks about mm-hmm. that we have between us and God starts at our conception and hopefully will be consummated in the afterlife when if we've lived as uh, as we ought and have chosen uh, to keep proceeding toward God with every free action that we do we will end up someday consummating that nuptial relationship in heaven forever
3: mm-hmm.
1: The Holy Spirit moving so strongly to bring her to the works, I think, of Teresa vavila not only in... in as you pointed out all of the connections of these two great minds these women who were uh, who who could think and to contemplate but as an interesting footnote too that teresa vavla in her own background her own heritage if i'm not mistaken her grandfather was of was a jew who was compelled through b- into baptism because of the, the climate of the times in spain in spain and to you see know. i did
2: not know that yeah oh, so period.
1: yeah so huh. there is that connection yeah that sure, connection yes. so i would imagine Imagine for um, her background, I mean, set on the world stage, she was known as quite the mind already in the circles of philosophy or even in her 30s.
2: Well, think about this. Edmund Husserl, one of the founding fathers of phenomenology, a branch of philosophy that was just just springing up. He, he fathered that, that whole realm of philosophy into existence, you might say. And who does he choose to be his assistant to edit his... Uh, you know, professional studies and to edit his professional writings. Edith Stein, and I'm sure she was the only woman amongst a whole classroom of followers of male philosopher students.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Who does he choose? Them? No. A guy? No. Edith Stein, probably the, one of the few women that studied with him, to be this personal assistant, which was, was you know, I mean... You edit the works of, a, of another great mind, that great mind trusts that you will be able to do that yeah. with astuteness. And, and he just, I think, had that, that almost uh, unflinching trust in Edith and in her abilities. So that indicates to me, you know, she was she was just one in a million.
1: It must have been quite a shock for her circle her social group and her those she worked with when she was baptized and brought into the Catholic Church.
2: Well let's go back to Hedwig Martius. I always I always try to recreate this scene, what it must have been like when they returned that evening, probably from having just a you know a good dinner, good time, maybe a movie, who knows? Come back and here is Edith walking out of the library, holding up the volume of the autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila and declares, I have met truth, and it is a person, Jesus Christ. Wow. I mean, these people had, I mean, the mouths had to have fallen on the floor, yep. maybe even fainted, who knows, but it they had to have been taken back by this. Absin- I mean, where did this come from? Because Edith was a very private person, and I suspect... She did not discuss where she was on this whole issue of religion, of faith, of prayer, of contact with God. I doubt whether she talked to that, about that to many folks, maybe even including her good friends, the and, um But God's hand is in all of this. You know, it wasn't just that book. She, she loved, uh, one of her favorite professors uh, was uh, Professor Reinach, Adolf Reinach. And he and his wife also kind of adopted Edith all the while she was in her doctoral studies. And they were Christians. I believe they were Methodists. So, you know, God just put her amongst amongst certain people who influenced her, whose intellect she also, and whose abilities she respected, um, and whose minds she was attracted to. And these persons were Christian. And so that had to have an effect on her wow, I like the way this guy thinks, and my goodness, I don't believe it, but he's also a person of faith. Well, goodness me, what could this mean? You know, because I don't think Edith saw, like a lot of 21st century people don't see, how I can be religious and be an intellectual at the same time. They, right. they consider those two absolutely diametrically opposed. And so I'm sure that that set her thinking about the possibility of herself. Ah. Maybe and, and that these were very good people. I'm sure that's, see, their good works, not just their good minds, but mm-hmm. their good works uh, also influenced her, which is a great lesson for us, I think. You know? We never know. We never know who's looking at us. We never know who we, you know, just by doing a, what we might even call a random act of kindness is going to change and bring some people to embrace the life they see that we have lived or are living.
1: It's a remarkable thing when you look at the time and place that she is becoming to this awareness, the work that she was in, and what the events that are occurring outside uh, nationally where there is this whole movement, the Nazis are, are rising up, and that whole, uh, the Aryan culture and that emulating that and lifting up uh, that to the expense of others and the dehumanizing of the individual, that she would be such a profound thinker who would rail against that, essentially, in her work. Would you say that's correct?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, the super race, you know, the Aryan super race. Mm -hmm. Everybody else was life unworthy of life, you know, in one real sense. Um, And she was a Jew, one of those unworthy lives unworthy of life, not... uh, you know, someone according to the Aryan tradition, pulling down the human race rather than building up, and the whole thing was probably based on tons of things, but one of which would be jealousy, because Jews were very prosperous,
0: mm-hmm. Jews
2: were very usually very intellectual and and very professional. So who knows? I mean, it, it's want to go that that route right now, but w- the the incident that I think of, um, considering as you say, the world stage, um, how how dramatic this must have been for her, because here she is. Doctorate degree, summa cum laude, from the University of Freiburg, probably top of her class. Assistant to a genius, Edmund Husserl. And because Jews were forbidden to teach in university positions, was denied entrance into that level of education for which she was perfectly and completely suited and prepared. So he got her was working. So she goes, okay, that's reality, I'm a Jew, I can't teach on the university level, what else is available? And by that time she had become a Catholic. So there was an opportunity, this small little boarding school for girls, high school age, that meant they were there all of the time, and then there were some uh, women of college age who were studying to be teachers, I'm not so sure that they boarded. But here... Edith found a place where she could really mother other people, as she knew she was called to, because as we're going to find out, those terms pillar and spore, the spore aspect of a woman's character and nature, is such a, that, that the woman is a person who gives life. So there she was, St. Magdalena, Speyer, Germany, as a counselor and a teacher of German in this high school boarding and preparatory school for college-age women. And she just had an opportunity to do all sorts of things, to pray, to translate Thomas Aquinas' *De Veritate from Latin into German, um, and to work with these women, these young, budding women, and to bring them and do for them what she knew every woman has the capacity for vis-a-vis other people. Uh, And then she goes to another educational institute in Münster, is there no longer than a year and a half after, I forgot how many years, at St. Magdalena's. And then Jews are forbidden to teach on any level. Mm. Secondary, primary, or the university level. Any level. Absolutely denied. Hitler had assumed chancellorship of Germany, and that became a decree. So, in the interim now, especially when she was at St. Magdalena, she'd pray in this fashion. Lord, I think the girls really need me. But yet I feel maybe a call within a call not just a call to Catholicism, but perhaps a call to be your spouse, to be a Spoonza Christi, a spouse of Christ. But you know, Lord, I just see I'm really needed where I am. Now, when she was no longer able, you know, I'm sure she said to the Lord, but you'll, you'll show me, you'll show me when it's time to respond to what I call is my what I think is my call within a call to religious mm-hmm. consecrated life. And then Hitler comes out with this decree. I mean, this is how God works, right? Through the things of history, through the things of ordinary life over which many times we have no control but speaks to us through that and so she writes, you know, okay, Lord, I hear you. I hear you. This is your way. Thank you. Here's my opportunity. Now, no matter if anybody needs me or not, as an active teacher out in the world, I, that has all been that possibility is no longer an avenue for me. I will do what I feel you're calling me to do. This is a great time mm-hmm. to, to enter this Carmelite convent, and she had visited there and was absolutely so moved. And if I could just share this one little thing that I think really must have confirmed her. Mm -hmm. Not only was she called to consecrated religious life, but the Carmelite tradition. She went to the Carmelite convent in Cologne. It was Holy Thursday. And she was so utterly moved by the words of the priest, the homily that was given, and of course by the whole ceremony, which is absolutely scintillating anyway, just from a liturgical viewpoint. Holy Thursday is just the epitome of, of our sacramental life and all of that. Well, at any rate, the... What the priest said made her think that Jews did not realize that what was really happening was this. God was asking them to share in the cross of Christ. But they couldn't see this. They were blinded to this. But she said, those of us that do see it, we will take up the cross in the name of others. See? And then she said, I would do that. But she added, what this caring of the cross involves, that I do not know. Now that was something like 19, oh, I want to say 30 or something like that, right before she entered
3: mm-hmm.
2: of the Carmelite Convent, that very same Carmelite
0: Convent. Yeah. And Sister, how old was she when she entered the convent? <laughs>
2: Well, I think Chris did the, the math. It was she 42. Was, she was 42. 42. 42 so oh. that was, um, I mean, she had thought about this, and, you know, nothing was, certainly nothing was rushed into. But how old was she when she converted? She was, what, 31? Yeah. No? It,
1: it, well, I think she so so was... Wasn't. She was in her mid-30s, but because okay. um, so it, it was several years after okay. her baptism mm-hmm. that But when she was 42, she entered the Carmelite. And it's interesting, for those who, who may not know, the Carmelite Order was the one founded by Teresa of
2: Avila. Oh, yes. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm presuming people know that, but I shouldn't. <laughs> no, well, no, I'm that glad that's, you
1: pointed that out, Chris. At, well, that continued connection, and I, I think she helped define so much what Teresa of Avila started. You know, you can see extensions of that into the work of of eda stein but uh, remarkable uh her life and her output uh her intellect continued god continued to use that to break open so much and in a few minutes we're going to hit on just a couple of those points so you can see that eda stein and her the gifts that god used through her still touching the church today in very profound ways you may not even realize it out there. <laughs> 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 The story of Edith Stein, Teresa Benedict of the Cross, she did embrace that cross. And there came a right. point where it, her death in the 20th century was one that was felt. I mean, it
2: has ripples. August ninth, nineteen forty-two. August, uh, I believe, second was when she and her sister. Now she had another sister, Rosa, who I guess was younger than Th- uh, Teresa, mm-hmm. Sister Teresa Benedict of the Cross. Then Edith, and she also converted to the faith, and she was acting as an extern in the monastery where Edith had transferred, the Ka- the Carmelite convent in Echt, Holland. Because, in fact, she felt she was too much of, uh, I mean, she was putting the lives of the other sisters in Cologne in jeopardy. Mm. So she thought she'd, you know, deport and, and move somewhere where there wasn't all the anti-Semitism. But as we know, the you know... Holland then fell to the Nazis. So
1: it, I think we need to to let people know that if you're confused, even though she had converted to Christianity and it was Catholic, even a Catholic nun, she was considered because of her birth a Jew. Right, and so she was still was. Oh, sure, essentially, essentially outlawed,
0: persecuted along, by
2: the Nazis. yeah, by by yep. well, along with her. People. Yes, and specifically why she was arrested in Holland was because the bishops the dutch bishops had issued a letter condemning the expulsion of jewish children from catholic schools that was the only school system that would accept jews oh, and the bishop said now look you just can't pull push these people out of our school system we we want you to keep these uh, jewish children in school in our system and um, and as a response to that the nazis retaliated by arresting all Catholics of Jewish origin there sat, mm-hmm. Ida Stein, her sister Rosa, in Holland, and she was one of the many that were rounded up, put on a cattle train, moved to Auschwitz, and on August ninth, um, exterminated in mm-hmm. the in the death camp there. You know, when when she and Rosa were. Um, arrested. It is said that Edith turned to her sister and said, Come, Rosa, we go for our people. Mm. So she saw everything out of that dual prism. You know, she was a Jew. She would always be a Jew. No way to be un Jewish, you know, when you're when you're born of Jewish parents. That was her ethnicity. She claimed being a daughter of Abraham in the most you know, exhilarating way, and yet she saw now the fullness of what uh God was really calling the Jews to, which is to bring Gentiles and the whole world to christ actually ultimately that 's where that 's where all of the the idea of being a chosen race was going, and so she she had really the best of both worlds, but she never denied either uh either prism you know always kept them in tandem and saw them as perfectly logical mm-hmm. perfectly logical, what she did, you know joining the Catholic faith. Becoming a Catholic nun, even though she was a Jew, now this this there was no contradiction in Edith's mind because she saw the reality of um, the call of the Jews and then the redemption and the sending of, of Christ. She saw all the meaning of that. So absolutely marvelous. I just would like to say about about her death uh, uh, camp um, existence, which was a very very short time because most of the time they were on that cattle train. But um, it's said that one of the survivors of Auschwitz who was there with Edith Stein reported that to see her smile almost hurt because you could see she understood the great suffering. And she didn't care. Edith wasn't concerned about her participation in that suffering, but how others would have to suffer. And she said it was as if every time I looked at her, all I could think of was the pieta Without the Christ, mm-hmm. isn't that just powerful? Mm-hmm. The Pietà without the Christ—I mean, her, her resignation and her suffering and her complete sorrow at what others were going to have to go through—was just uh, shows the nobility of this of this great woman.
1: It's interesting because I'm going to end up jumping ahead now because. Um, When you talk about the Pieta, of course, that is the image of the Blessed Virgin. Right. The woman, uh, the model of womanhood, who would be able to see and understand that. And Edith's work would ultimately help us understand what it is to be a woman, as you call it, the genius of of woman. I, I would like to talk about that because I think that's something that, It's so compelling today because we just have gone through a generation or two where we have been told as females that we need to be on par and equals with males in everything. But yet we're supposed to still be female. (laughs) Very confusing. And as we've come to understand when we we look at the depth of what theology of the body is providing us, a lot of us don't realize that where a lot of that theology of the body, Edith Stein was talking about years and years ago.
2: That's That's right. And remember, the, John Paul loved phenomenology. And in his phenomenological study and review of that area of philosophy, I'm sure he came into contact with Edith Stein. And while I wouldn't want to say John Paul is a plagiarist, I mean, <laughs> read Moliere's <laughs> Dignitatem. I mean, he's speaking in terms of genius of woman. He's he's speaking the same term that Edith Stein used um, years before. Mm-hmm. Well, so he did see the genius of Edith Stein. In describing the genius of woman, and the Pope uses uh, so the Pope uses that term, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really marvelous. I would just like to suggest to our, our listening audience that there are two small metaphors there you don't have to have a TV for this, you can just think about this: pillar and spore. Edith, in, in one of her essays on woman, uses those metaphors to describe what she calls the two natural predispositions. That mark the nature of every woman. Well, what does pillar mean for growing out mm-hmm. Let's start with spore. That's more interesting. I actually had a call, a biology major friend of mine, and say, "Jan, could you give me two examples of plants that I knew it would be in a, in a plant, but I didn't mm-hmm. couldn't think of any plant that it would had had spores?" And she said, "Well, that's easy. Think of ferns. You turn a fern frond over, and what's on the back? These little brown nubs, you know, uh, mm-hmm. pockets like." They contain spores. Those spores pop out, fall into the ground, which is why you see baby ferns, new life, at the foot of an adult fern. They're also spores are also in the heads of those cute little mushrooms. They fall out, which is why you see babies, baby fern, a uh, baby mushrooms at the base of an adult mushroom. Mm-hmm. So she's using spore, and she says this in her essays as for uh, to, to symbolize women who are on the way to becoming everything they are meant to be are like spores healthy energetic spores who give life and energy to others so think of spores and the one of the primary dispositions of women is to give life to others
3: mm-hmm.
2: pillar now what could that mean well edith says women are pillars because a second primary predisposition of the woman of woman's nature is to give stability by striving for wholeness. So they are, like, in the end, a pillar against which others can lean for support. in times of doubt, in times of trouble, in times of questioning, who knows, in times of frailty, something against which others can lean for support so that they too can be brought to wholeness. So isn't that marvelous? And then Mm -hmm. if you take those two images and those two primary predispositions of a woman's nature, follow them to their logical conclusion, you already know how she's going to be talking about the vocation of the woman to be a mother, to be a spore, to give life. And she means mother in both biological uh, meaning, in its biological meaning, and in its deep moral and spiritual meaning. So it covers all women. We're not talking just married women when we talk that you're spores, when she talks of women being spores and mothers. She's not just talking about married women. She's talking about consecrated religious, single women, married women. We all must mother. If we're, I mean, we're called to this. This To is nurture. Our, hmm? to, to nurture. nurture. yes.
1: That's what it is, and to sustain life, to yes, nurture life, yes, in, in its many forms. And so as you said, that's what struck me was that it's not only in the maternal na- I mean, actually the, those who give life uh, through giving birth, but it's also in the, the spiritual motherhood.
2: Everybody was mother, something or other, not sister, mm-hmm. but mother. And that you see the, how appropriate that is in, in terms of how Edith Stein thought of consecrated women religious that mothering and this whole thing of nurturing does not just apply to the physical act of giving birth, and we know that mothers who give physical birth to other people are also called to spiritually nurture them, so that motherhood is always going to go beyond the biological. Even for married women, it includes much more than just giving birth. So mother is just a, a fantastic term, but I, I agree. Nurturing is another way to say it, and it's a frequent wor- word we use today, what would be the other part of the vocation? Um, that is to be wholeness-oriented. And the spore business would be the vocation to be person-focused. Here's your nurturing idea,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, Chris. It seems to me that we, as women, need to have interest in and for the other so that we can bring the other, first ourselves, to a wholeness, our whole the whole harmonious development of our mind, our will, our emotions, interior senses, and then help others do the same so that they can become the complete persons that God means us to be. And, and then the spore, I, I mean, the, the, the pillar idea is, is that vocation for, for that wholeness too. So it's giving life, it's nurturing, and supplying this completeness of personality and personhood so that we can discover our true end, which is God. The good and the end of everything that we're doing and everything that we're dreaming and everything that we're thinking is the beatific vision, that intellectual vision of God that, as Bonaventure would say, uh, the absolute love of God, that we're drawn into divine love.
1: In that... uh I, I was struck, especially in what you have written on this particular topic, the need or that the gift of discernment that women have because of that relationship, relationship in nurturing, in in fostering and creating, and to sensing what the needs are of and the response to God's call to life yeah, and yeah. in life.
2: You know, it, they say that. Um, the girls that she worked with at St Magdalena uh, testified at some point, I don't know if it's in her beatification or in her canonization or what or because her really her whole process of canonization, I understand, was put into gear very, very soon after the end of the of the Second World War, which would mean not that long after she was was killed. Mm-hmm. And um, so they could have interviewed the, the students then, but at some point along this the, the way, her students testified to her ability to see into their souls, which is why. Now, you can imagine, think of yourself, I attended a high school boarding school, all girls boarding school, and I know that we looked at our counselors and teachers in locus parentis. These were our, you know, away from home moms and dads, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so I'm positive that these young girls at St. Magdalena would be looking at Edith. And then Edith was not just any counselor, Edith was someone that could mother them in the best ways, could teach them morality, could lead them into, how how some of the students said, saw the hidden burden Mm. laid on each one's heart, saw the hidden gifts that each one had, and could bring those gifts to full flower. Again, what is she doing? Developing the wholeness and completeness of the other pillar. Bringing them to new realization about their dignity and who they were. Spore, mother. Nurturing. It, fantastic. It is. I mean, it, and it, this is this is what I think contemporary women. It would it would just I think now I'm I'm sure, women are out there thinking. Well, gee, do I do those two things? And if if I'm sure we all are all involved in some aspect of this. It's just good to think about it. Um, to focus on it, because maybe it sheds light on areas of our life where we could be more of who we're meant to be. We could become more, you see. The vocation is there. It's up to us to pursue it, though. And we can't pursue it if we don't understand our nature. This is what Edith was all about as a philosopher. Who are we as women? What does it mean to educate women, and to train them to take a place in the Catholic Church as adult women, mature women. I'm struck with the,
1: the words of G.K. Chesterton when he spoke about male and female, and he said of, of, of his wife who, who never did have, they never did have children, but just by observing her, uh, that men need to go out and they have to toil in the world and they have to do all these things and bring home the bacon. And day after day it seemed like it was very difficult. the hunter-gatherer type of thing. And that woman, had the ability to be the teacher of the universe, to be the one who would introduce and through a a child or who they encountered to be able to open up the universe. And he said, I so envy the role of women. Why would women want to be men when they have this wonderful gift? See, the hand
2: that rocks the cradle rocks the world. They are the power behind the throne. And this brings your whole, thank you for bringing in G.K. Chesterton, as only G.K. Chesterton can be, um, Uh, faces us with this wonderful truth that Edith understood, and that is the complementarity. See, once you discover who woman is, it's like you then understand who the other half of the, the, the world of the human species are. Who are men? Thank what you. are men mean to be? Yeah, right. <laughs> Here's Bruce, I think, well, is anything that's ever going to apply to me? You
0: know, I've been sitting here on the sidelines <laughs> while well, she had to know how men and women were different. That's right. Yeah. And she says this. Yeah.
2: Though having distinct psychosomatic identities, meaning we have souls and bodies that are different, but there is a distinct way the th- the male body relates to the soul of a man and the female body to the soul of a woman. Mm-hmm. And though distinct Those different ways of relating body to soul make us complementary. Think about this. Edith understood this. John Paul got this from the reading of Genesis. Adam became, in that second chapter of Genesis, the symbol for really not, you know, one half. After Eve was created, he was a male, only one half. You know, originally there was only... human, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but then when it broke down into the complementary sexes, masculine species, feminine species, then males understood they're only half of what it means to be the whole of what it means to be human, and women are only half of what it means to be human. So it's the coming together, which is epitomized I would suspect, in the act of sexual love between a married man and woman, when they actually go back to being one flesh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The way that Adam was in the beginning, just one, and in that love, and the other interactions, male-female interactions in the political world, in the professional world, um, what, I guess those would be the two main worlds, but any time that men and women interact, it's seeing the two together working in a way that helps one another to become everything they're called to be. It's not like men are called to be the same thing that women are called to be. That's not it at all. Nor then should we want to be all like men or a unigender or something like this. Mm-hmm. No, this, this I think is just totally, it, it's against a common sense experience. We we just, I think women know this intuitively, men maybe not, but women know this intuitively. That they are called to something different, but by becoming what they're called to be, they will see how it just fits like two parts of an apple right back together, you know? And it helps the other half of the human race know who they are, well, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: and I'm also struck, sister, on another level too. When we look at vocations, not only it seems as this in this discussion, it seems obvious when it comes to the a vocation of marriage between a male and a female, but that of uh, the consecrated life and also of the priesthood, because the priesthood you are called to be a male and to perform the role as in a very masculine. And what I mean by that, and just that what it is to be male, but then also in the consecrated life. We need women religious to be able to serve also in those like the Teresa Avilas or the Claires of Assisi or of the you know those types of modeling where they were that spiritual nurturing that spiritual motherhood exactly and those two ultimately you know with Christ really uniquely so
2: in the center of the of those two roles. You know, yeah. yeah the, I'd like to just go back to how Edith describes um, the primary, secondary vocation of females versus mm-hmm. males. Primarily, she says women are called to be mothers, and secondarily to be rulers as companion. Now, companion is the the notion of helpmate, which mm-hmm. is what we get from Genesis. She was a helpmate to Adam. Right. Meaning that companion, you break bread with this person. You, you share life's journey with this person. You're all going to the same end, the same goal at the end of the journey, but you do this together. Males are called primarily to be ruler and secondary to be fathers as protectors and helpers. Mm-hmm. Again, the helpmate idea, the mm-hmm. companion idea. And I think Although I'm, I know some people balk at this whole notion, but, you know, I, I, just because men are primary rulers this doesn't mean there isn't a ruler part of the woman's vocation. Now oh, we, we know it's there. We know it's there, right. When we yeah. were kids, what did we do if we really wanted something and we knew Dad would say no? We always went to Mom and say, Mom, would you talk to Dad? Mm-hmm. If you talked, I know he'll, I know he'll like my idea. You know, yeah. why did we do that? Because we understood she did share in leadership in the family, exactly. but that she was like, I just like to think of it, the power behind the throne. I think we can go
1: back to that whole idea of, of queenship, even in the biblical setting, the mother of the king was the queen and she would be somebody who would sit at his right hand and would be able to, to intercede. Mm-hmm. You know, and to uh, have his ear. Again, in, in that role as someone who was a maternal nurturer, mm-hmm. uh, she was the queen of the land. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I just think that's. Interesting. Yeah, I never yeah, thought of that. It, it's mm-hmm. a, it, it's a, an important distinction when we understand our roles as women and being able to embrace that. It's, it's clearly that's what feminism is.
2: But neither role, Chris are a matter of domination over the other or over others, period. All men and women are all called to place those primary gifts that they have at the service of love. Mm -hmm. They just do it in different ways. It's not one upping the ante over the other, trying to um, exhibit some kind of control of the other. It's none of that. Mm -hmm. It's none at all. It's all life-giving, mm-hmm. but it's just done in complementary ways right. between males and females.
0: It's a unitive thing. Completely.
2: Yeah, we're all bringing creation to perfection. Mm-hmm. If we're all helping to continue redemption to help people enter the kingdom. We're all doing that, but male and female will do that in their distinct ways based on those distinct psychosomatic identities. And those ways, different though they be, complementary and together they can give us the complete way that you know together if we'd really cooperate and really learn from each other and grow from each other why i think we would i think god could even use us more than we ever 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 would think working in terms of domination that's not going to get us anywhere right
1: In that genius of woman, then, what would you strive for in the spirituality of of womanhood? Where would that lead you ultimately?
2: To sainthood. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That is actually what it does. Yeah. You see, that's what the genius of woman perfectly purified over a life of formation, events, rooting out the vices, acquiring the virtues. I just want to read something. I don't know. Cut me off if I don't have enough time. But this Mm -hmm. is just so... Beautiful. Um, in in Stein's writings, she talks about okay uh, for a woman to understand what her possible vices might be, like gossiping. Instead of having an interest in a person because you want to help them, it's just you're just nosy, plain old nosy. Are you looking at me? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm in- looking away. <laughs> Instead of no, I'm not thinking about anybody at this point. <laughs> okay, I'm all thinking right. about myself. <laughs> okay. If I'm thinking about anybody, and. Um, Are not women can have this tendency to smother others, you know, instead of going out as Edith says and helping them to become everything they're called to be according to their gifts and and their goals and the ways of reaching their goals. No, we have to control them, we have to smother them. Uh, you know, we're we're, we don't give them breathing room to become. And she said to be forewarned about these possibilities that what brings you up your great gifts as women. Can also bring you down, mm-hmm. and we know that to be true. But she says, "Okay, let's say we've gone through this life of purification. It, what will we look like when we come out? When we're purified, when we're transformed, women? What would the soul of a transformed woman look like?" And I just like to uh, to quote some of the things she says: "The soul of the transformed woman is expansive." What does she mean? Open to all human beings so that nothing human is foreign to this woman. This is a woman who goes abroad to search and to bring home the hidden treasure which rests in every human person. Mm -hmm. A woman who reveals the hidden burden, like I said before, which is laid. We're all slaying dragons of one sort or another Mm -hmm. to reveal that hidden burden and help the person carry it. It is a soul that is quiet. When do we need this? She says women have the natural gift of quiet, meaning this interior stillness, so we do not miss the small, weak voices of those that are calling us, or God's voice, which oftentimes, as Scripture tells us, comes in a whisper. Mm -hmm. So we do not miss this Warm. Warm not only in the sense we were speaking before we began as in warm skin or a warm uh, feeling in our bodies, but warmth that comes from a fire that illuminates. Illuminates. In this state, she says, all is bright, pure, and clear. Clara. So that no vermin will settle in dark resources of that woman's soul, a spiritual clarity, and a soul empty of self so that others, all what she refers to as extraneous life, can have room in it. See? Mm-hmm. If you're cluttered with all self-love, there ain't no room for anybody else. Mm-hmm. And this is a pathetic distortion of a woman's nature and vocation. Self-contained, there's that pillar. Mm-hmm. So that no invasions, you know how the world gets, our days, our, our months, our weeks are hectic. We're often trying to keep three or four or ten or six hundred objects in the air at the same time. But the self-containment, the, the virtuous life, the strength that comes from virtuous life, from always consistently desiring the right thing, the thing that will really help us, means that none of that outside chaos can imperil that inner life. This woman is mistress of herself and also of her body, and ultimately, Edith said, the soul of a transformed woman, which is to say the person of a transformed woman, is best summed up in the life and in the soul of Mary. This woman, virgin and mother, interesting combination here, virgin and mother. And in the center of that transformed woman, who of all the women fulfilled God's plan for what it meant to be a woman and a human person, never sinned, stands her son. And, you know, the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, it seems to me, brings up this next point beautifully because it shows Mary, especially her presence at the crucifixion, shows, I think, a very important thing about how God wants women to be vis-a-vis evil. God will actually combat evil through women, Edith says, symbolized by that powerful picture of Mary at the foot of the cross. And then her, her, her fiat. Everything she did for the sake of Christ as a follower of her son, she went everywhere you know perfect follower perfect disciple everything she did not as her action but as that what God uh, that which God had called her to so she was always f- saying yes she was always the handmaid of God at others disposal self empty disinterested love the the real fruition and transformation the bringing of those original pillar and spore gifts to their Complete realization, and in the end, um, when a woman has given herself the way Mary has, when those of us that aren't Mary, you know, and those of us creatures, womanly, feminine creatures who have inherited something from Eve, that still makes us want to go for that apple, that forbidden fruit, that still wants to rebel and set up one's own definition of things, Mm -hmm. that we've inherited. And when a woman has broken through that and taken Mary's stance, which is fiat, your will be done, Lord, in the midst of this, then she's bringing the kingdom, she's spreading the reign of truth, the light of Christ, and she will be, as I think St. Teresa of Benedicta of the Cross testifies, a saint. She will be a gracious spirit a grace-filled person a genius you see mm-hmm. a genius who has a pillar and a spore wants nothing else than to be that divine light streaming out of a serving love
0: wonderful absolutely spellbound sister thank you oh enthralling so much. well wow. I- edith
1: this is edith stein yeah. well this is the woman who appeared to another in her death as a piata. Standing there uh, without Christ in her lap, but in her heart, you know I mean this is this is why we celebrate this this great feast yeah. day, and I think we're just beginning to understand and one, to understand how she nurtured this concept to what I think ultimately women will uh, uh, they have to cling to now in this in this the society that would call us to something so completely different yep. and so destructive, yes you know we need absolutely
2: need sign. I Wait need, to need her today yep. but <laughs> I just can't be any more definitive I can't there agree is. any more definitively than yep I, that's horrible but yeah
1: <laughs> oh, sister Renee you've done just a uh, you've done her well you've done her memory you' honored
3: her memory well. Happy feast day.
0: Yes yeah. thank you so much sister for being with us. We appreciate it my
3: pleasure.